Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. We're here today with our special guest, Dr. Walter Shum, who is Professor in the Department of Applied Human Studies at Kansas State University, who's a specialist in the area of LGBT issues, same-sex parenting, same-sex marriage, uh, and has done a lot of empirical research in some of these areas. So, Walter, thank you so much for being with us, and welcome to our episode. Well, thank you. Yeah. Now, your research involves interacting with a lot of what I would call the conventional wisdom in the culture and the academic literature on same-sex parenting. So what I'd like to do is to take four of the main areas of what I would call the received wisdom or the conventional wisdom about same-sex parenting and to hear your take on it. Okay, so here's the first one of these. The conventional wisdom in the culture is that same-sex parents have just as stable a family as, as heterosexual families, and children just need to be loved. It doesn't matter by whom. What, what, what does your research show about that? Well, it's true that uh, in many of the court cases uh, leading up to Obergefell, uh, people, you know, had to testify. And a lot of folks testified that there was no difference in stability uh, between homosexual couples or LGBT couples and uh, heterosexual couples. And it's interesting that in the literature, I published a paper back in 2010 when I looked into uh, four studies that had been published at the time, and they coincidentally mentioned the stability rates of the Usually it was lesbian couples in the study, lesbian parents, and the stability rates of their comparison groups. Mm. And it turned out that uh, in all the studies, the lesbian couples had higher breakup rates than the heterosexual couples or parents. Sometimes it wasn't significant statistically, but it was always on the order of two to three times higher. And so that... That meant that, uh, generally speaking, over a period of five or six years, they were running about a uh, 20 to 30 percent breakup rate compared to probably five to 10 for the heterosexual parents. Uh, But those were not random studies. They were not national studies. And so I looked into other data sets, and eventually some uh, researchers from uh, Canada and Utah looked into this with some national data sets, and they found a very interesting interaction effect that if LGB couples didn't have children, they actually were relatively stable compared to uh, heterosexual couples. But if they had children, their families became less stable Whereas heterosexual couples, when they had children, they became more stable. So the trend lines were in opposite directions here. What, what do you think accounts for that difference besides just the, the normal stresses and you know highs and lows of raising children? Well, I think we really don't know for sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, the research is pretty advanced just to say there's a difference yes. here, much less to explain why it is. I I would guess 
and this is just a guess, that men and women have sort of complementary traits and needs. And so they may be more dependent on each other in a certain degree. Uh, whereas if you have same-sex persons, then they don't have that complementary nature that might increase their perceived need for each okay. other. I think that that sounds that sounds as, as plausible a guess as any. Let me give you, let me give you a second one of these. A second sort of conventional wisdom that children of same-sex parents won't become LGBT themselves or have gender identity issues. Okay? Again, tell me what does your research show on this? Well, again, the background on this is even more remarkable than the first question. Uh, people have been saying in the literature since 1975 that children uh, will not be more likely to be gay or lesbian or bisexual if their parents are same-sex parents. Uh, in one of my articles, I have about 150 quotes where people say this won't be the case. Uh, in fact, uh, some people have ridiculed judges by name. Uh, some people have said that anybody who disagrees with this idea is basically delusional or pretty much insane. I mean, the statements about it are really, really affirmative uh, without any caution whatsoever. Uh, we did a literature search of 72 papers published between 2001 and 2017, and over 90% of those reviews of the literature affirmed this idea that there was no difference. And so it's just amazing that the literature can be so absolutely firm on this issue. However, the way they got there was that they cherry-picked the data. So all the studies that showed there was a difference were just conveniently ignored. <laughs> and if you can mm -hmm. cherry pick the data the way you want, you can prove anything. Uh, so uh, one study in 97 found that 30-some uh, percent of the children of gay fathers uh, became gay or bisexual. Um, more recently, one study found a 65.5% rate. Uh, another study found a 70% rate. Uh, so I've got 59 studies I've looked at, and we're plotting the change over time. And it started out fairly low, but as time goes on and becomes closer to today, uh, the rates are going up. And by some models, uh, they really take off in the last uh, five years. That's where we're getting the 65 to 70% rate. Uh, so this is, it's just astonishing that you can have such absolute resistance to an idea when actually there's a lot of data to contradict it. Let me, let me take a third one, Walter. Um, third sort of conventional wisdom is that children of lesbian mothers are doing well as a general rule. Um, you know, we can, we can probably debate over how wellness is measured, but however it's measured, um, the notion that children of lesbian mothers are doing well. Um, you, you, suggests that uh, there's, there's data that suggests otherwise? Well, the most poignant study on this is that uh, one group of researchers were following the children of lesbian parents uh, since birth, and by the time they were uh, 17 years old, 
they found that almost 60% of the children of the lesbian mothers were using illegal drugs, at least occasionally, whereas it was a 20.5% rate for the comparison sample uh, that was pretty well matched uh, to the 17-year-olds. On other data, there's indications that gender roles are a little, some people would call them more fluid or flexible or basically contrary to conventional gender. And there's, you know, data that shows in some cases less uh, educational attainment. Uh, The challenge to it is that some of these things will disappear when you control for the stability of the uh, parental relationship. But that doesn't mean it isn't there. It just means that it's going from same-sex parent or type of parent to stability or instability, and that's predicting some of these other problems. So that doesn't mean the problems aren't there. It just means they could be explained away as a function of uh, problems with stability. Okay. Well, let me let me take a fourth one here. I, I, I appreciate the sort of the bullet points uh perspective you're giving me on this. But here's a fourth conventional wisdom, that uh, same-sex marriage being legal has had no effect on culture in general and on marriage as an institution in particular. Right. Uh, There's been a couple of papers that were published that claim that this is what they found. And when I replicated the data and just used whether the state had or had not approved of same-sex marriage, I got about the same results, but I changed the deep or independent variable to how long it had been since the state approved of same-sex marriage. And with that as the predictor variable, I found that the states that had approved it longer, there was a greater delay in age at marriage for everybody. And that greater delay in age at marriage led to reduced fertility. And so there was an indirect effect on reducing fertility. Now, that was the only variable I looked at in that case, and I can't say much about some of the others. Uh, But there is a thing called the second demographic transition where basically the sexual revolution has changed a whole lot of things. And the changes with same-sex marriage are probably part and parcel of that whole phenomenon. And so if you start trying to tease one out from the Mm -hmm. other, it's pretty sticky because there's a whole bunch of things that are occurring as a function of that whole phenomenon. Let's let's back up just a bit. Uh, And Walter, tell us, how did you get into this research in the first place? Well, a professor of law at Brigham Young University invited me to attend a conference back in, I think it was 2004, and he was looking for me to critique the methodology of some of the papers. Okay. And so that's how I kind of got roped into it. <laughs> All right. And but yet it's con- con- so it's con- but it's continued to be an interest, you know, for sounds like for many years for you. What what has sustained your interest in this when chan- chances are in in most state universities this would not be research that's particularly welcome. Well, it wasn't welcome even in my university, but I basically have a dislike for bad research, (laughs) particularly when bad research is used to inform policy. And there's just some 
terrible examples of bad research out there. Um, the latest one was published in 2019 in a top-tier journal. And real quickly, the authors used retracted papers, the foundation oh. for their theory. <laughs> that, that's a and problem. Then, <laughs> then they said that they found really profound results. But if you look at it, those really weren't significant statistically. And then they said the results for marginal were the only ones that were significant. And they claimed that the lesbian and gay people in the study were, you know, oppressed. But in fact, they earned more money and had higher education hmm. and fewer children than the heterosexuals in the study. Interesting. So that's an interesting way to be oppressed. Yeah, but yeah. And it, but their strongest effects were that the lesbian and gay people in the study had uh, higher levels of mental distress than these, you know, poor, uneducated heterosexuals, which is really the opposite of what you would expect. Let me let me um, move us a bit to some of the transgender issues, because I know some, some of your work has been involved with kids who are in the process of transitioning or have transitioned. Um, what, what does the research show in terms of the just the overall wellness of kids who are in the process of transitioning or have transitioned? I mean, it's you know, it's widely held that uh, that uh, you know the the main predictor of mental health for transgender kids is the support of their parents in that in that transition. But from from how what I read your research on this, that's quite a bit more complicated than that. So, what what does the research show in terms of just the the overall well being of kids who are in this transition process? Well, I think that. One of the problems here is that when they look at support, a lot of times they don't break it down into categories. And so no doubt anybody who feels supported for any reason probably feels better. Uh, the question really ought to be, does supporting the child specifically for transgender issues the key point or not? And a lot of studies don't make those kind of distinctions. Uh, one study I looked at, which just picked on parents who they assumed were providing support, they made the claim that, well, if the parents support the kids, then they have almost no mental health problems. But when I analyzed the data over again, we found that uh, they had relatively uh, substantial mental health problems even if the parents supported what they did. But these articles have been cited like 500 times in the last three or four years. So they're very popular, even though they're essentially wrong. But they use these little statistical tricks. They looked at self-worth among transgender, children of transgender, well, had children, transgender children that had parents that supported them, and then they had a control group of uh, cisgender children that were, you know, presumably supported by their parents. And the overall result was significant with a moderate effect size that the transgender children were doing worse. But they concluded that there was no difference. Well, how'd they get there? Well, they just ignored the overall result. They split the sample into three parts and then cut the alpha level by three and when they ran their tests, they didn't get to the O2 level of significance. So then they concluded there were no differences 
And it's just an amazing way to twist the truth around because there were significant differences overall. And even for one of the three subgroups, there was a significant difference. But that doesn't show up in their research. Now, you know, in light of that, uh, why do you think the no difference hypothesis in terms of all overall mental health of these trans kids is so widely accepted? You know, I'm taking a swag at this. Uh, you see, at first it was kind of like we want to promote premarital sex. <laughs> and then it became, well, let's sort of promote divorce and adultery. <laughs> and then it became, well, let's promote lesbian and gayness. Well, now, you know, the new horizon here is going to be mm -hmm. transgender. And it's kind of like people have to keep expanding the envelope of the sexual revolution. I guess they get bored if they feel like they're not doing it or something. And the next one's going to be polyamory. I kind of thought polyamory would hit before the transgender focus because a lot of the groundwork is being laid for polyamory in the same way that it was laid for uh, lesbian and gay relationships. Yeah, we, uh, where people are saying the same things. There's no effects on children by having a man with multiple wives. The kids are doing fine, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so uh, I think it's just another way for people to expand the envelope. And right now it just happens to be transgender. Yeah, you can. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I expected polyamory to be more prominent because – you know, the same arguments to justify same-sex marriage are being used to justify polyamory, and it's entirely arbitrary to limit, if you accept the premises underlying same-sex marriage, it's arbitrary to limit that just to one person. Well, and there's um, a worldwide acceptance of it. I mean, a lot of countries still accept it, so it's not like mm -hmm. somebody just plucks some new idea out of the sky. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I think you could probably make an argument that it's old. It's older than monogamy, Um you know, maybe by several hundred years. Um, right. So tell tell our listeners a little bit. Just your your you've you've done you've done a lot of deep diving into the research and the literature in the areas of sexuality, uh, LGBT, same sex marriage, things like that. What is what's your overall take on the 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 empirical literature that has come to dominate? this field in the last, say, 20 years? Well, like I said, one issue is that the reviews of the literature, which most people turn to for getting an idea of what's going on out there, are woefully uh, problematic because they just don't look at the whole spectrum of the literature. I mean, they just don't. I mean, if you find a review of the literature where the author says, well, there's actually one or two studies out here that contradicts conventional wisdom. That's remarkable. I mean, that's like, wow, you sit back and say, that's amazing. I I mean, there's actually 30 out there, but at least you mentioned one or two of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, when I looked at the reviews of literature, I found that there wasn't a single one that looked at more than 45% of the available literature. Uh, so, that's a real bias. And I think that the reviews that are done in these papers before they're accepted are probably pretty superficial. I mean, if it looks like it's a LGBT topic, I think a lot of reviewers are afraid to criticize it, and so they pretty much just let it go. 
We've got, you know, we've got a lot of our listeners are very aware of LGBT issues. They think hard about them. Um, they're, you know, they're not deep diving into the research on this like you are. But what what advice would you have for our listeners when reading articles or research, on, especially empirical research on LGBT issues? What what kinds of things should our listeners be aware of when reading some of this material? Well, I'd suggest they look up some of my papers first so they can be aware of some of the specific problems. However, uh, one of the things I want to bring up is there's a sexual minority theory that is widely used uh, for almost every article. So if there's problems with being gay or lesbian, that's attributed to uh, stigma or discrimination. And they just don't look at anything else in many cases. Um, And if you only look at one item and you don't look at alternative ideas, you'll probably find some degree of support for it. I mean, you ask a person, well, what do you think about the weather? And then you ask them, well, do you ever have any problems with the weather? Well, you're probably going to get some correlation Mm -hmm. there. So if you ask people, well, do you have any problems with being gay? And then you ask them, well, do you have any problems with people giving you grief over it? They're probably going to be correlated mm-hmm. <laughs> just because they're the answers are coming from the same brain or the same person. But people don't generally try to come up with alternative ideas. Uh, for example, the common sense one I like to throw out is suppose there was a child at school and he was gay but he was also using drugs. Would I tell my children not to associate with him because he was gay? No, but I might tell them not to associate with him because he was using drugs. Now, the person who's gay that's using drugs is probably going to say, well, some children are rejecting me because I'm gay. No, (laughs) they've been told to reject you because you're using drugs. You see what I mean? Yes, yes. But that's never controlled for. People just don't look at that sort of thing. Let me let me ask you another question, just about uh, you know, what what your life is like as a you know since you've been involved in some of this research. What what kind of opposition do you tend to get um, in academic circles uh, to this research that you're doing? Well, I mean, it's you can claim all these things are coincidences, but from my perspective, they're not, but they could be. Like I was at a conference one time and the plenary speaker publicly criticized me. And so they had a session afterwards. And so I stood up to disagree with the plenary (laughs) speaker. Well, then another woman who's a lesbian mother, she stands up and publicly says, Sham, you're an idiot. You don't know anything about qualitative or quantitative research. (laughs) So I asked, Bill Doherty, who's a famous individual, I said, what was that all about? Because it was curious to me because I've only got 300 publications and I've been a <laughs> professor for, you know, 35 years at the time. So, like, it, does, it doesn't make any sense on her face even. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, she's a lesbian mother and she's afraid that your research is going to give somebody ammunition to take her children away. So she's playing mama bear and she's going to slap you down anytime <laughs> she can. 
Okay, so uh, when my book came out on uh, same-sex parenting, it was curious the same week the fire marshal came by my office. He said he inspected every office in the building, but mine was the one that was defective because I had stacks of paper on my desk that were more than two inches deep. And I had books on my bookshelves that were lying flat on the bookshelf. Can you imagine such a horror? Terrible. At any rate, he said I had to get all of this cleaned up in one day. Wow. <laughs> so actually, I got it cleaned up in a couple of days. And then they said, well, you know, you've got too many bookcases. And I know everybody's given six and six, but you've got too many. So we're going to cut you down to one bookcase or two bookcases and one uh, file cabinet. Because we have to be able to chop through the wall with our axes to get into other faculty offices. <laughs> so I had, and they said if I didn't do it, they're going to all throw them in a dump truck and dump them on my front lawn. Yikes. So I had to basically, in the long term, I really had to move out of my office and let somebody else take it. And, uh, and eventually had to go into phased retirement because I could see the handwriting on the wall. But like one time I was criticizing papers in an advanced graduate course, and I was criticizing all kinds of papers, but one of them happened to be by lesbian authors, and there was a student that took exception to this, and so, long story, I got a letter of reprimand, which is really rare in the collegiate environment, Yeah, because uh, I wasn't doing my job right. But, wow. Yes. And then I was banished from my professional organization for life because I supposedly offended somebody for not accepting them for who they are, whatever that means. But it's interesting because I don't get a chance to know who it was, what I said, what I did, don't get a chance to apologize, don't get to know what day it was, what session it was, whenever, because that's their conference rule. And their rule is you can be in Russia, you can get on the web, write up some blurb against somebody, and they can take that as fact, even though it's just totally bogus. And they can use that to destroy your career. Um, so it just strikes me as extremely un-American to operate that way, but I'm not allowed to go back to any of these meetings anymore because of this one person that I offended. Well, so, so much for due process and the right to face your accuser. Um, right. But they're a the, private organization, so I've talked yeah, to several yeah. lawyers, and they have a right to do it. Well, yeah, that, that doesn't mean they should. Um, but, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear, and, and I think you're right to, that some of those things, are. it's hard to believe that those are just coincidences. Um, one one final question, Walter, for you. Um, I know that your, your, your Christian faith is important to you. Um, how, how, do, how does your Christian faith— figure into uh, some of the work that you've done, the research that you've done in some of these areas? Well, that's a touchy subject because when I was at the Gill trial in Florida back in 2008, the ACLU made all kinds of hay out of the fact that back in 1984 or sometime, I had put a sentence in a book chapter where I said I believed in the integration of faith and science. <laughs> <laughs> And that was like the world's greatest heresy, according to the ACLU. Yikes. Uh, it meant that I was inherently biased and, you know, a terrible researcher. Uh, so uh, I have to think carefully about how I say this. But in general, my sense is that 
God is the author of truth. And human beings, by God's definition, are fallible, myself included. So that means I'm open to possibilities that some things are more true, factually speaking, than other things. And I seem to have been given a gift of smelling a rat when it comes to bogus research. And so a lot of times I can just read a journal article and all of a sudden red lights start flashing in my Mm -hmm. brain about this doesn't make sense. You know, there's something fishy here. And most of the time I get those mental signals. There is something fishy with it. Uh, So, but, you know, some people have made a lot of hay out of some really bad journal articles. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the key papers used to prove that same-sex marriages were just as stable for children as not was a paper by Rosenfeld in uh, 2014, I believe it was. And he only had a 13% response rate, but they ignored that. But the crunch group was, what about the people who said they were married that had children? What were their stability rates? Well, for the... LGB people, it was 25% breakup rate. For the heterosexual parents, it was 8%. So it's three to one. Mm-hmm. But there were only four LGB couples, which in science is nothing. It was a data set of thousands of people. So they're trying to base this result on four people. <laughs> it's just absurd. Uh, yeah, I would hope. Hope the sample size would be a little larger than that. Um, but, and the other thing they did, which is kind of humorous, they took all the people that died during the four-year study, and they counted them as stable marriages. <laughs> One of my colleagues said, well, they're stable. They ain't going to move anywhere. <laughs> well, that's true. But none of this was ever brought out at the Michigan trial. That Scholar testified there, but nobody challenged him on the research. Nobody talked about the dead people. Nobody talked about the 13% response rate. Nobody talked about the sample size of four. I mean, they just got away with murder. Oh. Well, th- this has been this has been so enlightening. And uh, I want to I want to commend your research to our readers. In fact, when we Walter, when we post this. We will put some links to a handful of the articles that you've given Sean and me uh, in preparation for this. Uh, I so appreciate your work on this, uh, and I think for your courage in uh, in tackling this work um, and smelling smelling a rat on on research when uh, and saying so when you see it. Um, I, so I so commend you for your work, and I'm so delighted that our listeners get a chance to be exposed to you into some of your own research on this. Uh, this has been so helpful, so enlightening, uh, and I want to wish you well. I take, are, you, are you in, you're in semi-retirement at the moment from the university? Well, I'm on 25% for another three weeks. After that, I'm completely I see, retired. I'm fully retired. So you've, you've, been, you've been going on this gradual retirement program? Right. You're very good. Well, I wish you the best in your retirement, and uh, hopefully you'll you'll be able to continue to do some of this really important research because uh, it, it it just it needs to be done. Uh, and I think you've done you've done a great service here. So we are so so grateful for your work and for coming on with me today. It's yeah, well, great. I appreciate you for inviting me. Great, greatly appreciate it. 
This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. Think Biblically is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Institute for Spiritual Formation. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you've enjoyed today's conversation with Walter Shum, give us a rating on your podcast app and be sure to share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything. Thank you.